This is Lennon Givens. Welcome to the Bruz Bookshelf. The following podcast is designed to provoke thought, spark dialogue, educate, and entertain. The perspectives and language may trigger a range of emotions, from laughter to angst and possibly anger. Follow the Bruz Bookshelf on IG and Facebook. Leave us a message. We love to hear your thoughts on the podcast. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or any podcast platform you listen to. We welcome your feedback and thank you for listening. We continue with part two of Trevor Noah's Born a Crime, a conversation with hosts Dr. Harvey Hitler III, Stephen Gilliam Jr., and Donovan Snipe. When apartheid came, colored people defied easy categorizations, so the system used them quite brilliantly to sow confusion, hatred, and mistrust. For the purpose of the state, colored people became the almost white. They were second-class citizens, denied the rights of white people, but given special privileges that black people didn't have just to keep them holding out for more. Africanics used to call them the upper boss, the almost boss, the Hmm. almost master. You're almost there. You're so close. You're this close to being white. (laughs) Pity your grandfather couldn't keep his hands off the chocolate, eh? But that's not your fault. You're colored. (laughs) So keep trying, because if you work hard enough, you can erase the taint from your bloodline. Keep on marrying lighter and whiter and don't touch the chocolate. And maybe, maybe someday, if you're lucky enough, you can become white. That's white supremacy, buddy. Praise white Jesus. That's white supremacy (laughs) at its finest. You know they did that in Brazil too, right? Like that's the tool. Mm-hmm. They do that everywhere they go. They do that all over the planet. They do that on uh, CBS News. Uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> they yes, go, they, they do. They sex the dark skin away. You know Black-ish. what I mean? Like, stay away from the darkest. <laughs> Blackish. <laughs> it's a color people had it rough though. Imagine you being brainwashed into believing that your blood is tainted. You spend all your Imagine. time assimilating and aspiring to whiteness. Then, Imagine. just you, just as you think you're closing in on the finish line, some fucking guy named Nelson Mandela comes along and flips the country on his head. Now, the finish line is back where the starting line was, and the benchmark is black. Black is in charge. Black is beautiful. Black is powerful. For centuries, Color people were told, black are monkeys. Don't swing from the trees like them. Learn to walk upright like a white man. And then all of a sudden, it's Planet of the Apes and the monkeys have taken over. <laughs> That's a low blow, but we can get it. <laughs> it's Planet of the Apes. <laughs> <laughs> We here now, yeah. That's a low dig, but we can take it. We can take. It. That's gotta that that is like the the most genius crafted form of separating the people to not look at the real issue, and the real issue is like the people at the top getting money. You have black Man. people uh, who are separated in South Africa by cultures and languages. And then you have people who are light skinned and what they call colored are trying to work their way to become white. Is it different? 
<laughs> no, it's not different. The is only, it different now? Come on, bro. What, are you, is, what are you doing? The only difference is, doing is dance is written in black and white in law. And ours is de facto. Trevor, yeah. Man, yeah, what's understood they ain't got to be explained, so that's why we don't got to write shit down in America. You know your places, nigga. <laughs> Man, in Trevor, South Africa was a little, uh, you know, dicey. I mean, it's definitely um, a, a great illustration. I don't want to take away from that, but we, I'm just saying he he's clearly writing to a white audience, and it's I just laugh when he says it because I, I don't I don't he, I know he's not saying that to take away from our experience. He's talking about his experience, and he's giving it in a way. That um that makes you empathize with what they might have been going through, but bro, white supremacy is everywhere. They do that stuff everywhere. It's exactly the same here. We just don't have the luxury of having the names of our languages. But we all you speak Louisiana, he speak <laughs> South Carolina, I speak North Carolina. Hey, yep. Shit, you speak. You know what I mean, we all speaking different <laughs> languages, bro. <laughs> and Steve speaks Beach Boy Sir Surfer. Oh, you that's what my granddaddy told me, dog. So it's funny, but <laughs> 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 that's what my granddaddy. But no, I, I do, I do know what he means, though, because like, so he he's like talking about the choice that he had, right? Like he had a choice to identify. He felt like he did anyway. He felt like he had the choice to identify with the whites or with the blacks. And he was like, oh, I was getting my white on and suddenly my shit wasn't cool no more. And, and you know, you do have that kind of choice uh, as to how you want to portray yourself. I mean, we all see them on TV, all the all the black guys that are like not black, like I'm not black, I'm OJ. Ooh. Right? I mean, black is a politic, right? It's a, it's a it's a frame of reference. Ooh. And Ooh. yeah, exactly. Like I'm a good old, you know. American, I'm I'm just like you. I'm a There's nothing nothing changing me from you except my skin color. I believe right. the same things you do. Hey, I had a guy from the Republican call, party call me. <laughs> by the way, okay. Oh. He said, he said, he said, if you had to vote today for Donald Trump or uh, uh, Joe Biden, which one would you vote for? Bam. I said neither. He said, thank you, sir. Ain't hungry, ain't hungry to vote. Like, I told you so. <laughs> we knew it. <laughs> I guess he felt good about that answer. I fared right into his bullshit. Yeah, there's another one. There's another one, champ. <laughs> Right, 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 right. <laughs> City boys, we up, baby. Hey, right to his shit, huh? <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he got me the hell out of there quick, too, boy. He was like, thank you. Click it. <laughs> I started laughing immediately, but he got me. <laughs> This is when he started really introducing us to who Abel is. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, Lenny. Hold on, I'm sorry. Before you get to Lenny, before you get to Abel. But I think in this chapter, what I started seeing was the opposite of what Steve was talking about at the mm-hmm. first beginning of the book. I think this is where where the writing changes and his focal point becomes more articulate around the social issues. What would you say about that? Agreed. Agreed. I take back my previous hate over the previous uh, four hours of my wasted life. I just wish the book started. I wish he did like two paragraphs on growing up and then he just skipped right to this part. (laughs) To the Marbury tree. Man, I always liken this to the Stevie Wonder effect. He had a dance song with a social conscious theme to it. 
So what Trevor does is he gets everybody comfortable mm-hmm. and then he'll give you this social conscious work, make it very palatable for you so you can be able to take it in. He don't want to run you away. So he gets you comfortable, get some drinks in you, and then bam, show you the network marketing video. Let me say this timeshare. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> no, you, got, you, got, you got Stevie Wonder goose riding fuck the police out here, dog. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I heard you say. Oh, my God. In Mississippi. Yeah. You know this man, Steve, a lot of Stevie Wonder songs are very socially conscious. You be jamming to him. Yes, like, dog. hold on. Yeah. Like that song, very stu- superstitious. My- He's questioning religion. Superstitious is the best one. Yeah, he's questioning. Oh, he questioning the hell out of religion. Yeah, you like. Hold he questioning the hell out of religion. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes, sir. <laughs> Watch people yes, listening to his podcast. But go ahead, though. Go, go and turn on some Stevie Wonder. <laughs> but yeah, man, I like. Did he really write Fuck the Police? No, I know, right? <laughs> but so the story of the mulberry tree, the theme of the uh, chapter is basically he's just, uh, he goes down to this tree to pick some berries and there's some colored kids. And the color kids don't like him because they look at him as one of them. But he, they like, you trying to be black. But Trevor's like, I am black. It, actually, y'all are too, but you don't know it. Right. But it's, you don't know right, it. Those kids bully him and then throw berries at him. And he comes home black and blue from the, uh, the berries. And I think some of it is bruises from the berries getting hit so hard. And he he's so tough. He don't even care. No, he, he, don't care. Like, ah. he don't care. I mean, in terms of like emotional intelligence, Trevor yep. is there, but he knows that Abel has a temper. So he comes home and his mom warns him not to tell Abel, but he tells Abel anyway. Right. In half an hour, Abel showed up. At that point, Abel was still my mom's boyfriend. He wasn't trying to be my father or even my stepfather. Really. He was more like a big brother than anything. He joked around with me, had fun. I didn't know him that well, but one thing I did know about him was that he had a temper. Very charming when he wanted to be. Incredibly funny. But fuck, he could be mean. He grew up in the homelands where you had to fight to survive. Abel was big, too. Around six foot three. Long and lean. He hadn't hit my mom yet. He hadn't hit me yet, either. That's later on. But I knew he was dangerous. I seen it. Someone would cut him off in the traffic. Abel would yell out the window and the other guy would hunk and yell back. And in a flash, Abel was out of the car over to Dad's, grabbing a guy through the driver's side window, screaming in his face and raising his fist. <laughs> Do you know the other guy would panic? Whoa, whoa, I'm sorry. Uh, that's a, that's so a number one happened, sign of crazy people if they're willing to hop out their car and fight in traffic. It's like, you got a problem. Dude. Oh, yeah. Oh, you gotta believe that. yeah. They don't, they don't give a fuck. Yeah. But sometimes it's no. necessary. Hey, we got one. We got know. one. Sometimes you gotta just. <laughs> sometimes you gotta follow our motherfucker for a mile or two just to let them know. Ooh. Hey. <laughs> Don't cut me off. Don't cut me off. His mama was laughing, you know, trying to like downplay it. Abel was laughing. I told him what the bullies had done. I could see the anger building up inside of him. With Abel's anger, there was no ranting and raving. He clenched his fist. He sat there on the couch listening to me not saying a word. Then, very calmly and deliberate, he stood up. Take me to these boys, he said. Yes, I thought, 
this is it. Big Brother's going to get my revenge for me. We got into his car and drove up the road, stopping a few houses down from the tree. It was dark now except for the lights from the street lamps. But we could see the boys still there playing under the tree. I pointed to the ringleader, that one. He was the main one. Abel slammed his foot on the gas and shot up to the grass straight towards the bottom of the tree. He jumped out. I jumped out. As soon as the kids saw me, they knew exactly what was going to happen. They scattered and ran like hell. <laughs> Abel was quick. Good Lord, he was fast. The ringleader made a dash for it. He was trying to climb over the wall. Abel grabbed him, pulled him down, and dragged him back. He stripped the branch off the tree, a switch, and started whipping his ass. He whipped the shit out of him, and I loved it. I never enjoyed anything as much as I enjoyed that moment. Revenge truly is sweet. It takes you to a dark place, but, man, it's a satisfying thirst. So right then and there, we knew Abel wasn't a regular kind of dude. Then later on, the dude, Daddy, came to the house to try to check Abel. He saw Abel, and Abel looked at him and said, you want some of this, too? <laughs> my bike pump. My bike pump. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, that shit was funny. I watched as he got right into the guy's face. I couldn't hear what the other man was saying, but I heard Abel, don't fuck with me. I would kill you. The guy turned quickly and got back into the car and drove away. <laughs> While he was coming to defend his own of his family. Fuck with me. <laughs> he left happily to escape with his life. Abel was that dude, and he had a temper. I wouldn't say he's that dude. He was a dude. <laughs> he is a dude. No, he's definitely not that dude. He's not that dude. Uh, a dude with some anger issues. No, he was that dude in terms of you know that guy you can't play with and joke with because you never know what he didn't happened. have his own thing music. He didn't have his own thing. I don't music. know, man. Exactly. He probably did. Like, he didn't walk in the room like that. Like when he walked in the room, like yeah, <laughs> people had to turn around. Yeah. <sighs> nah. But but to your point, yes, the anger. Yeah, he definitely has displayed that that psycho berserk layer of anger. Has, has anybody had a, a a big person they found bump for them like that? I never had that experience. Nah. My daddy just told me don't run for nobody. Uh, he came one time I was running for <laughs> some kids. And he was just like, nah, we don't run for nobody. <laughs> hey, I got a story. <laughs> no, so I was like eight, nine years old. And there was this guy that used to come in our neighborhood. He was much older than me. His name was Jughead. He had to be like 15, 16. And when you eight or nine, Jughead, somebody 15, right. 16, that's a huge difference in, in, in body and everything, right? So one time he was uh, fixing my bike and he asked, could, could he borrow my bike? And I was like, sure, go ahead. You know, he's fixed my bike yeah. in the past. It was no big deal. Man. Went for it. A, a day went by, no bike. <laughs> two days. Two days turned into a week. A week turned into two weeks. And then by the third week, I saw him again. He was walking. And I was like, Judd, where's my bike? <laughs> what bike? I said, my bike, the bike that you, you borrowed. He said, man, don't ask me about that shit no more. He kind of like shoot me off. And I was like, okay, okay. So I went around the corner. I had a friend named Kevin who had two older brothers. One name was Chris and another name was Peter. Chris was one of those dudes that was like real big, real tall, kind of, uh, kind of, well, fat. He was like an offensive lineman, but could run real fast, real athletic. 
<laughs> and this like the 80s, man, where everybody used to smoke <laughs> So Chris was like Jughead's AIDS, but bigger. So I told Chris, Chris used to cut my hair for the five dollars. them coos. Yeah. <laughs> so I told Chris what happened. He was like, what you want me to do? I said, I want you to beat his ass. He said, all right, I do it for a pack of cigarettes. And I was like, I can't give you a pack of cigarettes, but I can give you some money for some cigarettes. He was like, all right, cool. He said, where you at now? I said, he's down at Miss Pat House because he used to go to everybody used to go to this lady named Miss Pat House and gamble and play. I used like- to buy my mama cigarettes when, she, when I was that age, but don't don't air that out, though, dog. Don't put <laughs> <laughs> So, man, we go down the street, man. I point the Jughead out. He beat the shit out of Jughead, man. When I tell you he beat the <laughs> shit out of Jughead, man, and towards the end, he had him in the headlock and Jughead nose was bleeding and he was punching him. And he was like, Lenny, is this enough? And I was like, nah, <laughs> hit him a few more times. <laughs> and then after he hit him a few times i said that's enough and he threw him down like a rag doll and i gave him his like two dollars to go buy him a pack of cigarettes and he walked off like literally walked off didn't turn around look at him or nothing walked off like he ain't gonna do shit to me and that's what happened. Where, where is that <laughs> dude now? He's got to be in jail with that kind of attitude. He's a bouncer. He's a bouncer. <laughs> I don't know, man. And yeah, I, I don't know where he is. And I don't want to wish that on nobody in jail. But yeah. Hey, but look how, but, but look how these stories, you know, Tiny Heasy Coach talks about it. I mean, a number of people talk about how these stories reveal how black how black lives don't matter, man. How fragile our lives are in the hood, and how violent it is in the hood, and how you know the pendulum swings on anybody. If you in that situation, you can get pointed out, and people not gonna think much about putting harm on you, you know. And that's surviving in the hood, though, Harvey. Um, I had to be that way in order to survive. Like there was no way you could right. grow up right. in that in that era if not being able to fight and not being able to defend yourself hurt people hurt people and a lot of people are are in the hood they're dire they're not getting the proper love and attention from their parents they're coming from a single family home where the mother worked all the time and she's not giving them any attention the dad is not there so they're mad they're angry and they're bullies and we didn't really use the term bully no it wasn't no such thing as no bully really that was a tv term in real life you just had people you had to deal with every now and then Hey, you know what? It's funny. One of my homeboys grew up smack dab in the middle of the hood. Shout out to my man, Jarvis Bass. Jarvis Bass didn't hurt a fly. He he ain't touched nobody. He was one of the kindest people, him and Garvey Presley. Like, them dudes grew up in the hood. They didn't mess with nobody. Nobody really messed with them. Jarvis is a soldier now. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's crazy. Like, he's straight up army guy right now. Last last I heard of him. But, um, but to your point, though, a lot of people can't. They're not so fortunate, man to be in those environments and not have to do something at one point in time. I got my bike stole. You know, something's going to happen to you in that environment. The hood could be a trap, too, because one thing about the hood is it's hard to lead the hood. And you know what's hard to come into the hood? And that's opportunity. Also, when you're growing up in the hood, you don't get the chance or be exposed to all the different career options that could be tailor-made for your personality. The only thing... Are you reading right now? No. 
I thought that was a Trevor quote. Trevor talks about that. My bad. Yeah, I thought the, uh, you was Go ahead, there, there's a lot of things that you don't get exposed to that can be tailor made for your personality. People in your neighborhood, they work service jobs or heavily dependent on government assistance. So you don't know government, anything. Yeah. So the only thing you really know is an entertainer, a doctor, lawyer. You know what I mean? If you don't want to be a doctor, lawyer, then your only option is an entertainer. That's why a lot of athletes from the hood go so hard because they trying to hit the home run. But that kind of goes into uh, chapter 15, <laughs> Go Hitler. He said, when I was in the ninth grade, three Chinese kids transferred to Sangerham, Bolo, Bruce Lee, and John. They were the only Chinese kids in the school out of a thousand pupils. Bolo got his nickname because he looked like Bolo from John Carr's damn dude. movie, Blood Sports. Yes, he yeah. is. <laughs> I got to know Bolo because he was one of my tuck shop clients. Bolo's parents were professional pirates. They pirate video games and sold them at flea markets. And as the son of pirates, Bolo did the same. He started selling bootleg PlayStation games around the school. Kids would give him their PlayStations. He would bring it back a few days later with the chip in it that enabled him to play pirate games, which he would sell them. Bolo was friends with this white kid and fellow pirate named Andrew, who traded in bootleg CDs. Andrew was two grades above me and was a real computer geek. He even had a CD writer at home back when nobody had CD writers. One day I overheard Andrew and Bolo complaining about the black kids at school. They realized that they had, they could take Andrew and Bolo's merchandise and say, I'll pay you later and did not pay them because Andrew and Bolo were too scared of the black people to go and ask them for their money. I leaned in in their conversation and said, hey, listen, you shouldn't get upset. Black people don't have any money, so trying to get more stuff for less money is just what we do. But let me help. Notice he said, that's what we do. But let me help. I'll be your middleman. You'll give me the merchandise and I'll sell it. Then I'll handle getting the money. In return, you give me a cut of the sale. They liked the idea and right away we became partners. As a tuck shop guy, I was perfectly positioned. I had my network set up and all I had to do was tap into it. With the money I made selling CDs and video games, I was able to save up and get new components and more memory for my own computer. Andrew, the computer geek, showed me how to do it, where to buy the cheapest parts, how to assemble them, how to repair them. He showed me how his business worked, too, how to download music, where to get rewritable CDs in bulk. The only thing I was missing was my own CD writer because it was the most expensive component. At the time, a CD writer costs as much as the rest of the computer, nearly 2,000 rand. So that's another thing. In the hood, you go to hood schools. And you know who don't attend your hood schools? People with money, people with affluence, people with knowledge to get out of the hood because they are out of the hood and they go to schools with other kids that are not in the hood. That kind of goes into what I was saying, man. The hood is a trap. Yeah, man. Yeah, we know that. We we do. Uh, is he? I'm I'm reading this for a whole nother side eye right now, though, Lenny, because I'm looking at this. So it's like we all know. I mean, basically, he's telling the story about you know he's he's made his money in the hood. You know. No, um, no, the no. Truck stop. No, he's not the, in the hood. The truck yet. stop he, guy. He's he's in the, he's at school though. He's he's. He's in school now. This is before he Yeah, this before this before he goes to the, the hood. He he started making yeah. his money at school because he would run 
hey, go to the, the canteen or whatever he called it. Right. And then he would be the first right. in line. And right. then, you know, he was the opportunist. Yeah, he was a natural salesman and he never really fit in in any groups. So, you know, he Not just, socially, he, right. yeah, he just coined himself as, you know, I can move in and out, kind of like with that chapter Chameleon. He spoke different languages. So, let it do, do you let's but look at back what, what's happening though. If he's saying that Andrew and Bolo is they they feeling like the black people not paying them, and he's saying I can make sure you get your money. I I get it, but what does that really mean? I gotta ask that question. Are the black people really running scams, or do the black people really don't have money? And the time of frame of reference is different, or did no. Trevor just lower the prices? No, no, I you just have to have like a liaison to the community, like. Everybody right. can't just, engage um, in the community and like with them being Asian and obviously different than everybody in the school, people thought, well, shit, it ain't but two of y'all, three of y'all, we can take advantage of y'all. So that's what they did. So where Trevor comes in is he's a familiar face, although he's not like. That's the question I'm asking, though, like Donovan, like, do we really Trevor? <laughs> Trevor said they t- took advantage of it. But do is that an interpretation of behavior? Is that a misread? No, that's what Te- Trevor told him. He's saying, no, that's not what it is. It's not that they're taking your money. They're just trying to bargain. So they got bad credit and you're giving them stuff on credit. Right. Like, hey, it costs right. you know, $10. That has I got to seven. I got seven, man. I get you back next week, but they don't really get you back next week. So, you know, Trevor, like, no, I know how to navigate that. I know what this is. If they got $7, take the $7 and then instead of giving them the game and the CD, just give them the game and say, when you can come up with $5, I give you, I get you the CD, you know, whatever. And he's saying, I understand them. So let me do this. I'll be the salesman. You give me the product and then you just give me a cut because I already got the people I deal with anyway. So I don't know, bro. I think it's innocent. I don't think but, anybody but, but was look at taking what happens, advantage how, of. I think there was a need. There's a need to. Uh, <laughs> you say he got it on the bottom floor. He was like, "Oh, y'all supposed to manage me. Let me do the heavy lifting." He, he can't help it, but but that's what happens. You know what I'm saying? The, the systems are are designed to create those opportunities for those people who fit those profiles. But where's the you exploitation? Know, there's a demand. He's supplying a demand. The demand is video games are out. Uh, they can't afford the actual $69 games. He, you have Bolo who's providing them with the pirate games and putting the chip in their PlayStation and they're getting it at a really low cost. Very, 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 very simply put, capitalists, you're talking about people who just came out of apartheid. So you saying that the last thing you, you saying that work? they shouldn't have any no, access? No, man. He's saying he's saying that Trevor wasn't supplying no, anything. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> She's not saying they should have a blackout on CD to this day These in people. South Africa. I don't think he's saying that. He's saying that Trevor's the worker. <laughs> if anything, they should have got everything they wanted for free. So you're it's th- a reparation situation. This just came out of apartheid. You, you got to keep this in mind. Like, don't look at capitalism as like the necessary way that business have to function. This just is apartheid just ended. So just like in the United States, when slavery just ended, you had sharecropping, then you had Jim Crow. So apartheid is ending, but yet this shenanigan is still taking place where the only thing you can do is be the barter of poor people. Mm. 
We're not talking about resources being given. Bolo and Andrew have access to resources. No one's talking about, hey, man, let's look at the conditions and figure out where to fix it. No, we're talking about how to exploit these people by selling them pirate CDs. As innocent as it sounds for a high school student, the system creates that innocence of you not giving a fuck about taking on black people. Okay. And so even though he's, he, he, apartheid ends, it still continues, and he's the mule at that moment. He's the one that gets to carry it. But we would never have that conversation if we're not in this moment right here. Every other way that story gets interpreted, the black people are taking advantage of these people, and Trevor is there to be the middleman. So Bolo and Andrew are the record executives, and Trevor is the artist, and he's just making his money off show money while they're getting that loan residual <laughs> money, right? <laughs> No, he's, he's thinking life is good, and he's posted up on the uh, up on the internet with his uh, with his money phone. But he ain't really getting any I mean, money because be- if he stop doing shows, he's not going to get any money because he don't own the masters. That's true too, but that ain't what I'm saying. That's that is true too. So, but that ain't what I'm saying. So he walking around here and he talking about life is good, and none of it would have happened without Andrew. Without him. I would have never mastered the world of music piracy. What he did on a small scale showed me how important it is to empower the dispossessed and disenfranchised and wake up in the wake of oppression. Andrew was white. How is that empowering anybody? Right there. I think that's what Harvey's trying to get. That's not, that's not, that's <laughs> that takeaway right there is like, no, sir. Incorrect. That is not it. <laughs> that is not it. <laughs> hey, but it empowered him. Yeah. You, you shifty, you shifty, naughty guy. <laughs> and the whites cheer. <laughs> hey, this that, right. This that New York Times bestseller <laughs> shit right here, buddy. <laughs> Trevor didn't do it, man. Trevor didn't do it. His, his, his publicist did it. His publicist did it, Steve. Hey, listen, it wasn't no. him. Hey, listen, it wasn't Andrew him. about to retired. He's about to give Trevor the, the record company. Andrew was white. Right. His family had access to education, resources, computers. For generation, while his people was preparing to go to university, my people were crowded in that's hut singing. Two times two is four. Three times three is six. La, 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 that la, is la. <laughs> my family has that been denied hilarious. the things families has taken for granted. I had a natural talent for selling to people, but without knowledge and resources, where was that going to get me? People always lecture the poor. Take responsibility for yourself. Make something of yourself. But with what raw materials are the poor people to make something of themselves? That's what y'all just said. People love to say, give a man a fish and he'll eat for a day. Teach the man the fish and he'll eat for a lifetime. But what they don't say is, would be nice if you gave him a fishing rod. The part of the uh, analogy that's missing, working with Andrew was the first in a lifetime. I realized that you need someone from the privileged world to come to you and say, <laughs> OK, here's what you need. Uh, here's, you need a license here's how it fish. works. You can't even fish without a license, son. Hello. Here's how it works. Teachers, lights. Talent alone would have gotten me nowhere without Andrew giving me a CD writer. People say, oh, that's a handout. <laughs> no, I still have to work to profit by it, but I don't stand a chance without it. So you guys He's take, telling you the guys truth. take reservations and pause that? Okay. It is, it, it, it is a truth. It's level one. It's level one recognizing the bullshit. 
Yeah, it's how we it's okay. how we uh, break apartheid and end up worse off after after forty years. This is what makes him ask his grandmama in that in that clip, "Are we better without apartheid?" He asked in this book too. I think I don't confuse it. Cause what I clip are you clip. talking about? The, there's a YouTube. This is what clip? makes you ask that question in today's society. Are we better off? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. He, when he goes back home, he takes the yeah. uh, Daily Show home mm-hmm. and he meets Coco, his grandmother. Patricia's yeah. mom. But it's just like when we ask the question, you know, are we better off, you know, before segregation? Yeah. Are we better I, off? I don't even like the own? phrasing it's of that, that question, you know, though, man, because that's bullshit. It's like, no, man, it's not. It Are we better? It's not like there's two options. It's you. It's this this thing that we're in right now, this liberal capitalist society or apartheid or Jim Crow. It's like that's I mean, that's a, a, a common dialogue that we have, but it's not like is this is it this or go back to the way it was it's like come on man there's other alternatives that we could we could do like what give me an example yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, socialism be clear <laughs> like uh like jeff bezos is about to be a trillionaire while he's laying off uh all his employees and taking away their hazard pay like we could just snatch amazon right now like we don't have to go back to being slaves what we could do is just snatch amazon make it a public utility and give it to everybody and have everybody profit off it yeah, so we we can do that. Damn, son. <laughs> Damn, son. <laughs> Where'd you find that? They said just snatch it. We ain't even talking no more, son. I don't even yeah. make like to make that light sneeze. So, so would he have to give back all his money, or like how how it work? Does he just want to make any more? He would make any more money going forward, or like? I would just take work? all his. I would just say this is a public utility. All your shares are now uh, public public goods. So whatever he didn't cash out, you lost it. It's eminent domain. It's eminent for domain. it's for the people now, and we're gonna uh, have central. Damn. We're gonna move towards a centralized planning of the economy, and yeah, yeah, man. You good though. You ain't gotta work again. You ain't gotta worry about shit, bro. Like we're not taking See, you sound like, a like jack all boy. your stuff is yours. <laughs> nah, nah, nah. All, your, all your stuff is yours, homie. We ain't taking nothing from you, G. Hey y'all, you good. hey y'all, uh, about you two good, weeks ago G. I saw this documentary on Netflix <laughs> called Cuba and the Cameraman. That's Castro's idea, Steve, that socialism mm. and that documentary give you like an inside look on what happened in Cuba. And it's also rare footage of Castro, and you get to see him. And see how charming he is and and charismatic. But Cuba has been living under a socialist system for years. The problem with that is, and the problem that it showed without trying to show, is that is not sustainable. There's going to be somebody at the top that's greedy. So idealistically, and in theory, that sounds real good, Steve, and I see what you're saying, but practically, no, you're right. that you're shit right. does not. You, no, uh, no, the app, no, the I will agree, though. It, it's it's there, on, on the off chance that there is someone at the top that's greedy. Hold on, Steve. Hold on, Steve. Hold on, 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 hold on. Just because you are socialist does not mean that you have to be isolated from other cultures, other peoples, and other systems and given the political situation that those people had to be under, come on, man, those conditions, you, you nobody has the right to, to, to talk about it because it can't be looked at as natural. They, they, they still live under constant threat to another economic system. So, of course, they're going to have some level of something because of that. Well, having well, to deal uh, with that. What it's I would just, say about socialism together, is man. there's not been in the modern era, a socialist country that has not been under direct attack from capitalism. 
Like, why do you think the United States is doing all this shit in South America, Venezuela, Honduras, Ecuador? It's because all those countries, uh, we installed right wing governments in the 40s, 50s and 60s. They overthrew those governments and then they started to socialize their economy. And we can't have we can't have. No, we can't have America cannot have an example of how to run an equitable society because the people that control America do not want an equitable society. So they will do everything they can to sabotage. So that means uh, buying off leaders, installing puppet regimes. That means sanctions. That means overthrows. Economic warfare, everything. Yeah, to say socialism has not worked and it's not practical. It's like socialism has been under attack from capitalism. Like that's there's no socialist thing that exists within a vacuum and there's not been a dominant socialist uh, hegemony like there's a capitalist hegemony in the in the world in our modern times like we have all the technology we need <laughs> we, we got all the technology we need to survive we can create all the food we need to survive like we can make robots do anything and we're not doing anything exactly. thank you yeah exactly kill mongers the bad guy in black panther shit. what the fuck come on man Come on, man. <laughs> we already had this conversation. He's already showed you this shit. And Brand. We've and already Brand. had this conversation. <laughs> and Brand. Hey, back to the book, though. Ad nauseum. This is the book. This is the book. <laughs> when Bungani and I graduated from high school, we couldn't get jobs. There was no jobs for us to get. The only ways I had to make money were pirating CDs and DJing parties. Now that I left Sangrium, the mini bus drivers and the corner kids in Alexandria were the single biggest market for my CDs. It was also there where I was playing the most gigs. So to keep earning, I naturally gravitated that way. Most of the white kids I knew were taking a gap year. I'm going to take a gap year, go to Europe. That's what the white kids were saying. So I said, I, too, am going to take a gap year. I'm going to take a year, go to the township, and hang out on the corner. That's what I did. You know, some of us are fortunate enough to get the consummate incubator that transitioned from high school into adulthood, and that's college. And for other people, that's going to the military. Steve and I did both. We went to college and the military. But even when you're at college and you try to rush and graduate in four years, Sometimes that's too soon because you're still like 21, 22, and you, even though you went to college to try to figure it out, you still need some more time. So if you listen to this podcast and you about 20, 21, 22, and you hadn't figured it out, it's okay. Because a lot of people that I know in college, when they don't figure it out, you know what they do? They go to grad school. <laughs> they get their master's degree. <laughs> that's what you do you you ain't you ain't going to grad school to learn for a, a lot of people are not going to grad school to learn they're going to grad school to buy some more time because they're not ripe enough to come out into the real world after grad school they get a little job and they try the real world and they say oh, i'm not ready for this you know what they do again yeah. They go get their doctor's degree. It, you know, no, stop it, dog. No, it's the truth. If you're in you college right now, just don't worry. You'll figure it out. Just go into uh, 12 more years of college and you'll be fine. So basically what he did was, man, he took this year off and he wanted to go to go to college, but he couldn't afford it. So he was like, you know what? This selling CD thing is booming. 
I'm starting to DJ parties, you know, so I'm going to take this thing and do something. He would DJ a party and play all these dance songs. So he said, new music's work for parties only if people know how to dance to it. Bugatti decided we need a dance crew to show people the steps to the songs we were playing. Because we spent our days doing nothing but listening to CDs and coming up with dance moves, our crew from the corner already knew all the songs. So they became our dancers. And hands down, the best, most beautiful, most graceful dancer in the crew was Bugani's neighbor, Hitler. Hitler was a great friend of mine. And good Lord, that guy could dance. He was mesmerizing to watch. He had a looseness and a fluidity that defied physics. Imagine a jellyfish if it could walk on land. Incredibly handsome, too. Tall, lithe, and muscular, with beautiful, smooth skin, big teeth, and a great smile. Always laughing. And all he did was dance. He'd be up in the morning blasting house music or hip-hop, practicing dance moves the whole day. And in the hood, everybody knows who the best dancer in the crew was. He's like your status symbol. And when you're poor, you don't have cars or nice clothes, but the best dancers get the girls. So that's that guy you want to roll with. Hitler was our guy. So Hitler is this guy. He's he's in their dance group and they putting on like a, a, a traveling show. Right. So his name is Hitler. So here's the Hitler story. So the colonial powers carved up Africa and put the black man to work, but didn't properly educate him. White people didn't talk to black people, so why would black people know what's going on in the white man's world? Because of that, many black South Africans really didn't know who Hitler was. My own grandfather thought a Hitler was a kind of army tank that was helping the Germans win the war because that's what he took from what he heard on the news. This Hitler was so powerful that at some point, black people had to go help white people fight against them. And if a white man has to stoop to ask a black man for help fighting someone, that someone must be the toughest guy of all time. So if you want your dog to be tough, you name him Hitler. If you want your kid to be tough, you name him Hitler. There was a good chance if you, you got an uncle named Hitler, it was just a thing. So there was also this to consider. The name Hitler does not offend black South Africans because Hitler was not the worst thing to black South African can imagine. Every country thinks their history is the most important, and that's especially true in the West. But if black South Africans could go back in time and kill one person, Cecil Rhodes would come way before Hitler. If the people in the Congos can go back in time and kill one person, Belgium's King <laughs> Leopold would come way before <laughs> Hitler. If Native Americans can go back in time and kill one person, it would probably be Christopher Columbus or Andrew Jackson. So in Europe and America, yes, Hitler is the greatest madman in history. And in Africa, he's just another strong man from history books. So they are with a dance group, right? The guy named Hitler setting it up. So this kid mom asked us if we wanted to play at a culture day, (laughs) a culture day at some school in Linksville a wealthy suburbs of Sangerham where my pal Teddy had lived. So she sent us the information and with the time and place and the name of the school, King David School, a Jewish school. We were up there. We were billed to go as the hip-hop, the South African B-boys. We set up our sound system on stage 
we looked out, the whole hall was nothing but Jewish kids with their yarmulkes ready to party. I got on the mic. Are you ready to rock out? Yeah! <laughs> Make some noise! Yeah! I started playing. The bass was bumping. My crew was dancing and every and everyone was having a great time. The teachers, the chaperones, the parents, hundreds, and hundreds of kids, they were all dancing like crazy. I set was scheduled for 15 minutes. And then at the 10-minute mark came, the moment for me to play, Let's Get Dirty, Bring out my star player and shut shit down. Now this had to be either in two thousand one, oh one. Give it up for oh one. Yeah, because that's that. That's off that red dirty. band malpractice CD. And that came out. Y'all know the name? Yeah, I love that album. <laughs> well, I started the song. The dancers found out in the semicircle. I got on the mic. Are you guys ready? Yeah, <laughs> give it up. Make some noise for Hitler. Hitler jumped out in the middle of the circle and started killing it. Guys around here was chanting, go Hitler, go Hitler, go Hitler, go Hitler. They had their arms out in front of them, bouncing to the rhythm. Go Hitler, go Hitler. And I was right there on the mic, leading them along. Go Hitler, go Hitler. The whole room stopped. No one was dancing. The teachers, the chaperones, the parents. The hundreds of Jewish kids in their yarmulkes, they all froze and stared angst up at us on the stage. I was oblivious. So was Hitler. He kept going for a good 30 seconds. Only the sound in the room was the beat of the music and me on the microphone yelling, go Hitler, go Hitler, put your hands in the air, go Hitler. <laughs> this fool, a teacher ran up behind me and yanked the plug from my system out of the wall, dead silence. She turned to me and she was living. I dare you. This is disgusting. You horrible, disgusting, vile creature. How dare you? My mind was racing. <laughs> Trying to figure out what she was talking about. Then it clicked. Hitler had a special dance move called the Benvana. That means where you work. It was very sexual. And this move he was doing at the moment the teachers ran out. So Clearly, oh, the dance was the thing she found out so disgusting. <laughs> this food so oblivious. But this was the mood that African people do all the time. It's the part of our culture. And here we are sharing our culture for culture day. And this woman was calling mm -hmm. us disgusting. She was offended. And I was offended by her taking offense. Lady, I said, I think you need to calm down. I would not calm down. How dare you come here and insult us? This is not insulting anyone. This is who we are. Get out of here. You people are disgusting. And that was it. You people? Now I saw that that was the deal. This lady is racist. And she couldn't see a black man dancing suggestively and not getting pissed off. And that's why I started packing up my gear. And we kept arguing. Listen, lady, we're free now. We're going to do what we're going to do, and you can't stop us. I have you know that my mm -hmm, people mm -hmm. stopped your people before, and we're going to stop you again. She was talking, of course, about stopping the Nazis in World War II, but that's not what I was hearing. Jews in South Africa was just white people. All I was hearing was some white ladies shouting about white people beating us, and they'll beat us again. And I said, you would never stop us again, lady. And here's why I played the Trump card. You never stop us because now we have 
Nelson Mandela on our side, and he told us we can do this. So now what? <laughs> <laughs> just be wrong. They just be wrong as all get out. He ain't wrong though, but he just wild. <sighs> Think about how how he go. Connect that dot to the Planet of the Apes joke, though. You know what I mean? Uh, so it's like, <laughs> it's <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The opportunist speaks, you know? <laughs> it's like, you know, I, I won't help with the guy, but I'm going to use this guy's name to get out of this wicked, you know? Anyway, that's funny as hell, though, how, how, how white people, though, make their narrative the master narrative and the only one that matters. Because the whole fact that a man named Hitler anyway speaks to white dominance, you know, white, the whole right. that whole presence, right? You know what I'm saying? And so they don't even know they Jews; they just look like white people to them. Like I didn't know what a Jewish person was until a white person pointed them out. I had a white man in Indiana talking to me about Jewish people, and I looked at him and said, "Man, I don't know what you're talking about, man. Who who's Jewish?" He said, "People whose name ends with er, like Berg." And 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 er like Ferber and 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 Lenners and learners and you know the Jewish people and he started pointing people out. Mm. I'm like, what the hell? This is the same dude that says sunshine to me. So I'm like, you know, oh. I don't know what this shit's I about. That's the sunshine guy. Yeah. <laughs> so this dude, you know what I'm saying? But, but to the point. Trevor was the same way. He didn't know what a Jewish person was. You know, he recognized the yarmulke, but, you know, the idea of a Jewish person being separate from white people, it just shows you how self-centered white people are. It's a great story, man. It's a beautiful story. Again. And, Again. Uh, eggs on white people's face. You know? <laughs> but, hey, man. If you really think about it, Trevor was always an outsider. The only time he wasn't an yeah. outsider was when it was just him and his mom. But he was really an outsider right. in his own home with his stepdad and his little brother. He was an outsider in his mm-hmm. own home. He was an outsider when he went to go visit his grandmother. Tragic he was an outsider kid. when he went to That's school. how it be. He was an That's outsider when he was... Which, but, oh. Hold on. Hold on. Oh, the only wow, time right. he really he wasn't an outsider... And he felt accepted is when he moved to Alexandria. That's the only time he really didn't feel like an outsider, right? Because he said, "Because the hood accepts everybody." When, when exactly that's what he said. He said the unemployment rate, technically speaking, was lower in South Africa during apartheid, which makes sense. There was slavery. That's how everyone was employed. So that goes back to the first podcast when we was asking about the history of Africa was their slavery. Right. And he addressed it right there in that chapter. Well, every morning they would wake up. Maybe their parents would go to work and maybe not. They would go outside and chill on the corner the whole day talking shit. They were free. They'd been taught how to fish, but no one would give them the fishing rod. One of the first things I learned in the hood is that it's a very fine line between civilian and criminal. We like to believe we live in a world of good guys and bad guys. And in the suburbs, it's easy to believe that because getting to know a career criminal in the suburbs is a difficult thing. But when you go to the hood, you see that there's so many shades in between. See, in the hood, gangsters are your friends and neighbors. When you know them, you talk to them on the corner, you saw them at parties, they were a part of your world. You knew them before they became gangsters. And it wasn't like, hey, that's a crack dealer. It was more like, Oh, that's little Johnny selling crack now. The weirdest thing about the gangsters was that they were all at a glance identical. 
They drove the same red sports car. They dated the same beautiful 18-year-old girls. It was a strange. It was like they didn't have personalities. They all shared a personality. Kelly. Yeah, that's from the outside looking in, though. That's an honest assessment from his point of view. The hood made me realize that criminals succeed because crime does one thing that the government doesn't do. Crime cares. It cares. Crime is grassroots. Crime looks for the youngest kids who need support and offer a lifting hand. Crime offers internship programs and summer jobs and opportunities for advancement. <laughs> crime is a, is a summer work program started by Mayor Barry. Crime gets involved in community. Crime doesn't discriminate. My life as a criminal started off small, selling pirate CDs on the corners. It in itself was a crime, but by hood standards, it didn't even qualify as illegal. So here he is living in the hood, seeing it from an outsider's perspective. And he's bringing it to the world through this book. And he's humanizing the people who otherwise people look at as those people or savages. Yes. Good word. And that's what I like about it. And Steve, so these are the things in the book that he's using his privilege to help push his people forward. (laughs) It's people. Who are his people. Yeah, who who is he pushing forward? No, he identifies as black, man. Okay. How how have black people been affected as a group by his actions? That's a lot that's gonna be a long how deep breath. <sighs> he humanizes. <laughs> oh, so he, he no, can plead for black people to white people that yes, these black I mean, people are human. Okay. Yeah. Great, thank mm-hmm. you. <laughs> okay, Keisha. They're already human, but he does bring to light one of those things that is a, like a recurring theme for Black people around the world. Is just that everywhere we live is kind of in some some form illegal. Like um, mm, every mm. place that Black people or people, well, non-white people are are housed is usually the part of town that has the most relaxed environmental laws. Um, just everything in that environment is usually polluted and or seedy. So black neighborhoods then become synonymous with crime ridden or crime infested neighborhoods, which just um, kind of leads into that part about like him and the cheese boys, where it's like to be an authentic black person or to, to be deemed as legitimate, you have to come from like the roughest, dirtiest, most downtrodden part of town to, in order to, to feel real, just because that, that poverty has been so associated with blackness that some people have a hard time separating. You internalize that shit. Exactly. And it just happens everywhere. I I mean, for me, uh, I was just going to say, you know, the part about that, that I appreciated is that like he went through some shit and he was speaking to his experience, right? Like I think his, his kind of social analysis or political analysis is like, it's very exceptional, right? He's the exceptional black so he, he's like, yeah, these rules are just, it's an unfortunate circumstance that these rules exist and, you know, he overcame them, uh, or at least the narrative in the book. But, like, he went through some shit and, you know, he, lived, he you know, hung out with, with poor people, maybe by choice, maybe it was, like, some kind of exploratory thing. Um, but it's like, he lived a full life. No, he was poor. He lived, a, he lived a real life. Yeah, I'm about to well, say. Well, yeah, okay, so, yeah, okay, here's what. I, I I'm not saying this man was rich, but but there's a difference, and there's a mindset, and there's uh you know I grew up poor, like I didn't have a lot of money, 
but uh, the family that raised me also wasn't uh, generationally poor and oppressed and in poverty, right? So, like, I could go hang out with my hood friends, but when the time came and, you know, it's like, okay, I need to go somewhere else, I had that option, right? Like, Trevor kind of had that option. He was hanging out in the hood, and his mom was like, why are you doing this? And he was trying to find his identity, and, you know, he had a lot of that shit internalized, and he was like, this is this is who I am. Like, exactly. I'm a black person. This is what I'm doing. And after a while, when he got sick of it, or he couldn't do it, or whatever circumstances led him to get out of it, largely him getting locked up, he was like, okay, I can't do this. I'm going to do this other thing. And he he easily was able to do that. Thank you for listening. Join us next week as we continue our discussion on Trevor Noah's Born a Crime. Our next book will be Tower Westover's Educated. 